Good morning, friends. Hope you're all doing well today. I'm doing pretty good myself. Uh, we're in the Advent season here, and for each a week or each Sunday in Advent, we've been looking at a different promise, a uh, different Christmas promise. We looked at hope and then peace. Today we're going to be talking about peace. Next week is love. And so, of course, you're all invited back for each Sunday, and it's good to be um, going through these promises together. And today we're looking at the promise of the birth of the Prince of Peace. And if you want to follow along in your Bibles, it's going to be from the book of Isaiah and chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So we're talking about the promise of the birth of the Prince of Peace. And I want to start off this by talking about when was this promise given? This promise was given uh, 700 years before Jesus was born. It was a prophecy that was given. And the people it was given to um, was the people of Judah, the southern, portion, uh, the southern kingdom. There's two kingdoms. There's Israel and Judah at this point in history. And Isaiah the prophet gave it to the people of Judah. And it was um, also the king at that time was named Ahaz. Isaiah, his name means... The Lord saves. That's a great name, isn't it? Lucky guy. And he actually lived in Jerusalem. And we know when when the book of Isaiah was written, because throughout the book of Isaiah there's prophecy, but there's also historical events that happen. So we can line it up and we know when things went down. Now he gives his message to the people of Judah. And the people of Judah were materially prosperous, but they were in a very destructive pattern of sinful behavior. Now, these people knew God's covenant. They knew what they were supposed to be doing. God had been very clear in saying, here is what the people of God ought to look like. Here is how you ought to behave. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. You'll be a light to the nations. I'll protect you. I'll let people know how good I am by the way I treat you and by the way that you treat others. But these people were not doing what God had asked them to do. Instead, they had adopted a bunch of the um, Eastern mystical religions that were around them different kings had brought in all sorts of false gods and false temples, and the people had put their hope in all sorts of deities, or false gods, I should say, and not the true God. And so they're in a really bad situation. Their king was named Ahaz. He was a godless man, and at the time he was very threatened by the invasion of Damascus. And Isaiah had prophesied to him, listen, you can't put your hope in anything but God here. And what Isaiah or what Ahaz did instead was he put his hope into the Assyrian army and said he made a deal with them so they could protect him from Damascus. And what eventually ended up playing out in about 732, so that's 32 years later. Oh wait, I said that backwards. Nonetheless, what played out about 20 or 30 years later is that Assyria is the one who came, and they were the ones who actually ended up overthrowing what was going on there. Okay, so actually Isaiah chapter 8 concludes with the prophecy of destruction on Judah that would be brought on by Assyria. But the good news is that we find out this destruction would not be permanent. So we're going to pick up now in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Let's see what's going on here. For starters, I want to teach you about something called the prophetic present. 
That is when future events are described as if they'd already happened. And there's a lot of that going on in Isaiah chapter 9. He talks about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali being humbled. So this takes place within 30 years of the prophecy that's given. And Naphtali and Zebulun are the two most northern tribes um, in Israel. So they're the first ones to be attacked. They're sort of on the edges. And Assyria would attack them within 20 to 30 years. Uh, And what Assyria did when they attacked this land was they came in and they found all the leaders, all the political leaders, all the cultural leaders, and they removed all those leaders and took them somewhere else. And then they replaced them with political and cultural leaders from different religions, from different cultures. So what began to happen was that that part of Israel, Naphtali and Zebulun, became very intercultural, all sorts of mishmashes of religion and things going on. And it didn't look very much like God's people at all anymore. It was given the name Galilee, that's the geographical marker, Galilee of the nations, or a Jew might say Galilee of the Gentiles. And so it was humble, that, that region particularly. The prophet Isaiah says to them, though, that honor is going to return. The first place that was attacked would be the first place that would be honored. Very interesting. Can you guess what that honor was? I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with a famous Jew that might have grown up in Galilee. Any guesses? Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth of Galilee. He was going to honor that region by being growing up there. And this region that had been in darkness, um, that hadn't, that completely sort of missed out of what, what God was doing there, they were going to get something tremendous to happen to them. We're going to read about that in the next um, couple of verses here, next few verses, two to five. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You, God, have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Let's discover what's going on here. What we're reading about is a transformation that is coming. Darkness will be changed to light. When you and I think of darkness, we think about 21st century darkness, most probably. Because of the uh, invention of electricity, you can flip a switch and the lights will come on. If you're in my backyard, in the, in the middle, in the dark of night, you could read a book just fine, without any help. Because we have these wonderful LED efficient street lights that illuminate my backyard. So I don't really have a good feeling for what darkness is. But if I was living in Isaiah's day, and it was an overcast night, and the light of the moon couldn't get through, and I couldn't see the stars and their constellations, it might be completely disorienting. The darkness of night, you can't see what's going on. And furthermore, it's actually not a safe place to be either. And the darkness of night is when the bad stuff happens. It's when you probably want to just go to your house, lock the door, and stay safe, and wait for the morning, wait for the light to come. And Isaiah is saying, that's what's going to happen to this region. They're in darkness. A light is going to come. And what will this feel like? What will God do? It's an enlarged nation. It's growing. Something good is happening. It's an increased joy. 
And he gives off some different ways to think about what that joy might feel like. It might feel like the joy of harvest time, when the farmer has got the whole crop brought in, the work is over. I'm not a farmer, but I think it'd be a pretty good feeling to see that all the work you've done throughout the the, um, planting and the growing and the harvesting, it's done. You can kick your boots up and say, man, it's good. It was a good harvest this year. Another way to think about this joy is like the army has fought the battle, the war is won, and now they're just dividing the spoils of war. There's there's no more enemies out there. They can just relax. It's a joyful time. That's the kind of joy that is coming that the prophet talks about. What will God do? It's going to be a decisive victory that is prophesied here. We know it's decisive because he says things like the yoke will be shattered and, and the rod will be broken and the staff will be no more. It's all, all the tools of war, they're gonna, everything that the oppressor did to them, everything that made them live in darkness, that made them feel like a slave, that made them feel like they didn't have a choice in what they wanted to do, all those strongholds would be broken and they'd have a freedom in, in this pro- prophecy that they're giving. And it's going to be just like Gideon in the Midianites. He says, as in the day of Midian. And what the prophet Isaiah is trying to do by referring back to Midian is saying, do you remember what happened in Midian? Do you remember the victory that Gideon had over the Midianites? And they would remember this. And this would build their faith because they know that God had called Gideon to defeat the Midianites. And the Midianites had been oppressing the Israelites harshly. And they wanted help. They're crying out to God, help us, God. And so God says to Gideon, you're the one who's going to do this. And Gideon calls together the army, and God says, no, 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 no. And he keeps on making the army smaller and smaller and smaller until there's only 300 guys left. And God says, now we're going to go beat the Midianites. And he does. Supernaturally, this group of 300 people destroys the Midianite army, and we see the power of God. And that's what the prophet Isaiah wants the people to think about. Look how powerful God is. You're going to have that kind of of a victory. And what will God's victory look like? Well, they talk about a bonfire where the tools of war are declared obsolete. You're not going to need the the clothing of war anymore. Throw it into the fire. Just get rid of it. You're not going to need the bloody boots of war. Their job is over. Throw them into the fire. We don't need that anymore. It'll be such a total and an absolute victory that is being prophesied You won't need the tools of war. In our day and age, we can think about guns. We can think about tanks. We can think about bombs. All those sort of defense and attack things that are necessary for peace and war in these times, completely unnecessary. You won't need that anymore. And we ask ourselves, have we seen this victory yet? Has this come true for us? Well, no. We, we would be in a bad spot as the nation of Canada if we had no defense mechanisms and, and nothing to protect ourselves because we're still in the middle of a suffering world. There is still war that's going on. But back when this prophecy is given, peace is being promised to a nation who in the next 20 or 30 years are going to then be oppressed. And so it's like the trouble hasn't even come yet and the prophet is saying, yeah, trouble is coming, but here's some hope that you can hold on to. A son is going to be given to you. A a child is going to be born. And you can put your hope that even though it's tough times right now, even though there's going to be suffering and some long periods of hardship, look forward to this Messiah who is going to be coming. 
God knows for them that suffering is coming and that there is yet something to look forward to. What do you need to hold on to to get through suffering? What, what helps you when things aren't going as you hope that they would go? We can hold on to the promise of a Savior. And that promise is given to us in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. We'll read the rest of that later. A child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. You might underline the word given because I think it's a really important word there. But first, a child will be given. We, we can read there when it says a child will be given that this child that is coming will be fully human, just as we are fully human. This Messiah that's promised is fully human, but at the same time, it's a son that is given, and it's, it's the son of God who's coming. So we see that the Messiah who's coming will be fully God and fully man at the same time. And he will be given by God for us, given by God to us, to his people. We need to always remember that Jesus is given for us. To help us remember that. Who here is a fan of the Calgary Flames? Me and Riley and some others. Okay, so last year they had a slogan that was up above their, their dressing room and all around, and you could see it, and it said that it was always earned, never given. And that was the mantra of the team. If you're going to be a Calgary Flame and you're going to get some ice time, it's not going to be because someone gave it to you. There's no gifts in this team. You're going to work for it. You're going to earn your spot on the team, and that's going to make us a better team. You know, it's the exact opposite with the promise of a Savior. It's the exact opposite with being a, a, a Christian. Christ is always given and never earned. Amazing. You, you can't earn salvation. You can't earn the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was given to us, a gift from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, always given and never earned. When was this fulfilled? When was the son given? Well, it happened at a point in, Christ, in history, it happened at Christmas time. We're celebrating that, this season. It's the already part of this prophecy that's given because we've already seen it fulfilled. It's completed. The Son has been given. This has happened. God has come to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came in history. This is an event that has been noted and we know it is true. He was given. He was born at Christmas time. He lived a perfect life, a life of righteous obedience, yet he died a sinner's death. We're told that he rose to life again on the third day, and then now he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. This has happened. This is true. But the rest of the passage that we're going to look at here deals with a mix of already and not yet. These titles that belong to Jesus are already true about him, but there is more to be done, more to be fulfilled that we can look forward to. Let's reread Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The government will be on his shoulders. 
It's a way of saying he will rule. He's, he's going to have the government. And the, Israel, the Israelites had their share of incompetent kings, kings who brought in false religions, kings who didn't lead their nations in worshiping God. They knew what it was like to be ruled by an incompetent government, a government that was hurting them instead of helping them. And now they're given the promise, when this son comes, the government will be on his shoulders. You know, when you have an, an unrighteous government, the whole nation suffers. The whole nation of Israel was deeply affected by a king who would bring in false temples, a king who would put up all sorts of idols around that people could trust in. In fact, uh, an example of a good ruler was King Jehoshaphat. And you can read about him later on in Isaiah. And what he did was he removed all the idols so that now the people had to call out to God because there is no other one to turn to. You can see the effects of government. And you can look forward to the day when it's Jesus who will have the government on his shoulders. Like, can you imagine with me what it would be like to be part of a nation where it was God's perfect government ruling things, where it was his laws, where it was his righteousness, his justice. It was his wisdom that was helping people. We were experiencing his ways, his rule. It sounds very, very good. It would be an amazing, amazing nation to be a part of. We're told that one day, he will govern Israel. So that's Micah 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. So we know that when he comes, the nation, he, he will govern his people, Israel. But we also see in Zechariah 14:9, he will govern the world. Zechariah 14:9 says, On that day, Yahweh will become king over all the earth. Yahweh alone and his name alone. So this amazing government that is prophesied, we know will one day happen. But there is already part to it as well. It does sound good to be underneath the rule of Jesus, doesn't it? Of having his ways. You know what? Right now, at this point in history, there is the ability to voluntarily put yourself underneath the rule and the government of Jesus Christ. That's quite frankly, what being a Christian is. It says, I don't want to govern myself anymore. I don't want to trust any other rule in my life. I want to trust Jesus' rule. I don't want for him to be my king. I want to call him Lord above all others. And you get his government on your life. It's, it's a way that we right now already are part of his kingdom. You can do that voluntarily. But there's also a not yet part to this that will be fulfilled. There is a day coming when every knee will bow down to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. So we can see here that it's an already and it's a not yet. You can put yourself under God's rule now and you can begin to benefit right now directly from his rule, from having his wisdom, from having his peace. Um, another title given to Jesus in this prophecy is that he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, wonderful, exceptional, distinguished. Counselor, someone who gives counsel to make plans. Good counsel for making right decisions. Most likely in the context of Isaiah chapter 9, they're going to be thinking of a wonderful counselor as somebody who is a brilliant military strategist. 
In today's context, do we think of the son who is given as a brilliant military strategist? I think we actually probably should think about Jesus this way. I think it's a great way to think about him. See, he, for example, knew what war to fight first. He fights the war against sin first. Jesus comes, and what does he do? He shows us what God's love looks like, and God's love, and probably the most complete expression of God's love, is him going to the cross in the place of sinners, dying the sinner's death to make peace possible between humans and God. And he defeats death. Where, where is the sting of death now? We know that for eternity, if we're in Christ, we will be with God. He fought the war against sin first. Yet he's also going to win all the other wars. So, so what's the delay? Well, part of God's strategy, his brilliant strategy, involves giving people time to repent. And I'm very glad that he is patient to give people time to repent. I am not always patient to give people time to repent. You know, when I'm wronged and something happens against me, I kind of want instant justice. Like, let's deal with this right now, and let's make this right, and punish that person for what they did. Aren't you glad that God's not like that with us when we sin? Instant judgment and right away the wages of sin on our life. The Bible describes that in 2 Peter 3.9 like this. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Part of his strategy is not immediate justice, but a patient justice that says, I want for people to hear the truth. I want for people to be able to voluntarily put themselves underneath the rule of Jesus Christ. And so there's time that's given, a kindness that can lead us to repentance. So Jesus is an excellent strategist, but he's also an amazing counselor. He, he knows wisdom. He is wisdom. He's, he's the truth. We can go to him for counsel. When there is a tough decision or an easy decision, when you've got a plan that you've got to make and you're looking forward in life, who do you go to or where do you go to for counsel? What role does Jesus have in you when you form your opinions? At this point in history, it's voluntary. You can choose whose counsel you're going to take. I mean, you can go grab a self-help book and take the counsel from there. You could watch uh, a talk show and get counsel from there. Or you can say, well, I've got the Messiah. I've got the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My life is under his rule. I think I will take his counsel for my life. It's a voluntary thing, though. You get to choose to do that. Uh, you don't, no one's going to force you to. But I would encourage you to give God's counsel the first place in your life to submit to his rule, to say, God knows better than I do. God knows me better than I know myself. I'm going to read his word and study it and seek to understand it so that when I make decisions in life, I can be using God's counsel in all of my decisions. Because of the peace that is made possible at Christmas, we can have peace with our decisions and plans. And what I mean by that is when you're doing things God's way, you can have peace with it. You can know that Okay, I've studied the word. I've asked for counsel from my, my Christian friends. I'm part of a healthy church. I'm, I'm submitted to what God wants me to do. And I'm just going to go ahead and obey him. And I'm going to trust him that if somehow I'm not quite on the, on the right path with this decision, he's going to steer it straight. So there can be a peace there. The, the weight of the world is on Jesus' shoulders, not on our shoulders. He's the one with, 
with the government on his shoulders, and he's, he's the, um, the wonderful counselor, helping us both through his written word, through his people, and his prayer. We also see Jesus here as mighty God. The promise of Isaiah 9 looks towards a baby who will be called mighty God. Uh, some people interpret this text as, say, a superhuman prowess against enemies. Others will read it as the divine nature of the Messiah. This isn't just a baby, this is God. Hindsight shows us maybe it's a bit of both, because we know that Jesus is divine, but he did have superhuman prowess. He, he proved that he was God through many signs. Uh, one of the things I like about the book of John, if you ever read the Gospel of John, is it talks about Jesus' signs that he's doing. It doesn't always call them miracles. It says, and he did this sign and that sign. And it's always showing how he's fulfilling all these things from the Old Testament, giving signs to the people that he is God. He is the mighty God. Here's some things he did that I think were proving that he's God. He walks on water. He, he was able to do miracles. He, he demonstrated his divinity in all sorts of ways. He, he walked on the water, and then he spoke to the storm and said, peace be still. He could command nature to obey him. He could command the angels, the demons to obey him. Everything is under his rule and his control. He showed us what God's love looks like. And he proved that he was God, probably by the most powerful sign that this world will ever know. He proved this sign by being raised from the dead after he died. God is mighty. He is for you, and he can show you his strength in a way that he knows is best. We get to trust God saying, you know what's best. And one of the ways we know that he knows what's best is because the next title he gets is Eternal Father. In 8th century BC, when the prophecy is given, they would probably interpret this as a beneficent ruler who exercises a fatherly care for his people. You know, you kind of are hoping that whosoever king of the land will treat the people like his own family that he would treat the subjects as people that he loves. Because parents have a special kind of a love for their kids. They pay a special attention. Last Thursday was my kids' turn to have their school um, Christmas production on. It was Songs from the Polar Express. And when it was time for my kids to be up there, we'll say the grade four class, I'm looking up at the front, and there's a whole bunch of kids. There's three different grade four classes there. But I'm really just focused on the one girl in the front row in the middle, our family's always in the front row because we're short. And so there she is, and there's a whole group of kids singing, but I'm paying special attention to one, and I'm watching what she does because that one is my daughter, and I've got a special care and a special interest, and I want to see her do well. And we're told that this son who's going to be given to us will be our eternal father. He's going to have that sort of a care, well, much better care than that for his children. And the amazing promise of the Bible is that to all who receive Jesus as their Lord, to those who believe in his name, who believes all these titles are true, he is the Son of God, he is the Wonderful Counselor, everything that's said about him is true, to those people is given the right to be called children of God. God adopts us as his own children. We get that fatherly care from God. But never forget that the Son that is given is also the eternal Father. Let's put the emphasis on eternal now. From antiquity, Jesus can see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. You and I were created in time. We experience time in a sort of linear way. God is outside of time. 
What an amazing person to have as your wonderful counselor who knows what's going to happen in your life tomorrow, who knows what's going to happen three years from now for you, who can give you counsel now about things that, how would you ever know it on your own strength? He is the eternal Father. He does what is best for His people. And sometimes the way that we see things is obviously not from an eternal perspective. I mean, we can even try, but we're limited, right? But we have God, the eternal Father, who is helping us and speaking to us and leading us in our lives. An amazing promise. So, we're going to play a little game now. Yes, we're going to play a little game. We're going to play Guess That Nickname. So on the next slide there, I've got some famous leaders' nicknames. We're going to see which ones you can guess. Pastor Sig can't play. He's already heard the sermon, but I'd say he got three out of four, and I'm very proud of you. So let's play the first one. You can write these down if you want to keep score. If you want to do it mentally, it's just for fun, so there's no prizes. I might give you some points. Uh, Our first guess is for Winston Churchill. Does anyone know what his nickname was? Okay, I'm not going to have an awkward silence. It is the British Bulldog. Anybody get that right? Congratulations. One point for you, sir. Um, Abraham Lincoln, he's known as... Yes, Honest Abe, that's right. I'm going to give you 20 points. I'm not equal with my points and they're free to give out. Margaret Thatcher is known as... The Iron Lady, very good. And... This, this is the tough one. Arnold Schwarzenegger, anybody? Yes, the governator. So these names have a little bit of ways of describing the people. Did you listen to the names that were given to Jesus, though? Did you listen? He's the wonderful counselor. He's the eternal father. He is the mighty God. And because of all these things, we know that the final is also true. He is the prince of peace. And now when we're talking about the peace that Jesus is prince of, it's actually taken from the, the, the word shalom. It's a Hebrew word. And that word encompasses a bunch of things in it. it there's a prosperity, not necessarily a wealthy prosperity, but a, a, a prosperity that says good will come to you. There's, there's a completeness there. There's a safeness that is involved with this peace. There's a health there. There's just an overall satisfaction that all is well, that things are right, and that things are good. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. What would life be like under his rule? What does his kingdom feel like here and now? He actually talks about that in a sermon he gave. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the poor in spirit are blessed because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Uh, Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. Um, He says that those who are gentle are blessed. It's the gentle who will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. In his kingdom, that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. Uh, We find out that the peacemakers are blessed. They're called children of God. The pure in heart are blessed. The pure in heart, if you seek for a pure heart and and a holy heart, God says you get to see God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. That's a little picture of how Jesus describes life in his kingdom. He's the prince of peace. What does that look like now? Uh, we talked about how part, part of this, a lot of this prophecy, we haven't seen it fulfilled yet. We still have the instruments of war. We're, we're still in a world of suffering where, where people that we love 
pass away, when, when we get injuries or sicknesses and we don't completely understand it, when, when we want for things to work out, but life takes us on a different turn. And what does peace look like for us now? Is, this, is there a part of this prophecy that we can already hold on to? And the, the truth is, yes. The, we can have the Prince of Peace guarding our minds and guarding our hearts now in Christ Jesus. We can have peace in the middle of a broken world And even though we understand that things are not yet as they should be, and we look forward to the day when things will be as they should be, in in the midst of our suffering, there's there's this supernatural peace of God that says all is well with us. Even when we look around and there is pain and there is hardship, there's a peace that God can give us. And it's it's a clear thinking. It's It's a safeness. It's a completeness. It's a satisfaction. There's just, there's a healthiness in God knowing that we are his people, and he's got us. And there's no height or depth or angel or demon or even life or death that can now separate us from the love of God when we are in Christ Jesus. There's a tremendous peace that is ours right now. But there's also a peace that we're looking forward to, an amazing peace, a peace that will look like no war. The instruments of war thrown into a fire. We won't need them anymore. There'll be no evil. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no reason to fear. That is part of this promise that we're looking forward to. You know, God works on a big scale across time. And we need to be faithful no matter what our present circumstance is that we find ourselves in. Things might be great. Things might be tough and hard. But we can be faithful to God, trusting that he is working in us, doing what's best for us throughout history. And he's working things together that we can't see, but we're going to be faithful to him, just trusting that God is at work. And we're going to know that he's got us and that our eternity is with him. He works across people groups by his power and for his good. Listen to what Jesus says we can have. He says this to his followers in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Think about that for a second. Jesus is giving his peace. He's the prince of peace. He's giving that to us. I do not give to you as the world gives. No, your heart must not be troubled or fearful. You can trust God. When we're celebrating Advent, I wonder if we all know what that word Advent means. I thought I knew what it meant. Then I did some research this week, and I learned that Advent actually is talking about the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. What are we celebrating in this Advent season? Well, we're talking about the first Advent when Jesus came to earth as a man. It was his arrival. But there will be a second Advent when Jesus is coming again. And we also look forward to that second Advent during this season of Advent. We celebrate that Christ has come, that this baby has been given. But we look forward to the second Advent with a hopeful expectation when Christ will come again, not as a baby this time, but he will come through the clouds. He came as a baby, and it was such a small little event that people didn't know what was happening. The, the angels were visited by the shepherds, and soon the word began to get out a little bit. When Jesus comes a second time, the whole world will know. It will be unmissable, unmistakable. The king of kings, the king over all kings, and the Lord of lords will come on the clouds. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, For this reason, God highly exalted him, that is Jesus, 
gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will say, Jesus is Lord. This is no longer a voluntary or an optional thing. This will be such an obvious thing that every single person will say, yeah, King of kings, Lord of lords. It will be unmistakable. And he's coming the second time to judge. His word will be final. Those who have voluntarily submitted their lives to his rule will be called righteous. And why will they be called righteous? Why will those people who have submitted their lives to Christ be called holy and blameless in the sight of God? It is because when you were under Christ's rule, when you've asked him forgiveness of your sins and he said, I will live for you, his righteousness gets placed on your life. And you are now seen through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when he comes to judge, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're called righteous and good. Those who are not in Jesus will be found to be his enemy. And we look forward to that second coming because, well, wrong is going to be made right. Suffering will be no more. This this promise will be fulfilled. The justice that our hearts long for. We see people get away with stuff. We say, why are they getting away with that? How come that person is doing the wrong things and seems to be succeeding anyways? No, at the second coming, the judge will come, the king of kings and the lord of lords, and all that is wrong will be made right. It will happen. The justice our hearts long for will be satisfied. Isaiah 9-7 says, The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal or the eagerness of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That is what we're looking forward to. That is what our hopeful expectation is. That is why we have this good news of Jesus Christ that we must tell to our neighbors, that we must tell to our communities. They need to know you can put yourself now under Christ's rule. You can benefit now from being a part of his kingdom. And the day is coming when you want to be found on his side, under his righteousness. He will come to judge. We need to be found righteous. What can we do? We can trust God's promises. That's one of the takeaways for today. Trust God's promises with your life, no matter the circumstance that you find yourself in. We can trust that God will do what he said. We can trust God from victory over sin, and then we can trust that the day is coming when there will be victory over all. That bonfire is going to happen. The instruments of war will not be needed. A second thing that we can count on is that your peace with God is both now and forever. Peace in our hearts now, peace without fear or harm in eternity. 